I want to thank uh, Ted for setting up our worship so well and for the hymns you chose and so forth. Yeah. Um, whenever I hear uh, Sherry and Joanna sing together, I'm, I, I hear the Holy Spirit singing. And, and so I've already worshipped. <laughs> so I'm not nervous about the sermon. <laughs> yeah. um, I first I want to um, make sure everyone knows Pastor Steve wrote this week an email that maybe several of you got about Hana Assad in Palestine. How many of you have uh, received this? Didn't know if he, yeah, quite a few. He says, I know that you will join me in praying for Hana Assad, his family and ministry, as you read the note I received today. Hana is pastor in Gaza, uh, where the violence is happening. Uh, I think the one evangelical Christian church in Gaza. And he is also, he has been um, participant here at First Baptist and, and, and a student at Fuller and is our 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 representative there. Um, he says, Steve, Pastor Steve says, I'm always deeply moved to consider Hannah, his ministry and courage. He says, I'm reading Jimmy Carter's recent book on the Middle East and more aware than ever of the acute suffering and turmoil of that region. Pray not only for Hannah's well-being, but that his love may abound so that he is able to discern what is best. Philippians 1, 9 and 10. Pray for peace in our time. And he included a message from Hannah himself. Dear friend, greetings to you from Gaza in Jesus' name. The last two days have been dangerous and very difficult. The American Council asked us today if, as American citizens, we want to leave Gaza. But without any hesitation, I said, no, this is where we feel God wants us to be at this time. And it's a privilege to be in the midst of God's will, and it's the best place. Some of the church members had to move to another area in Gaza City where it's more safe. The booming and the shooting have been almost continuously in the last two days, and this time the fight is more aggressive than the previous one. We do not know what is happening in the church building because no one is able to go check. Even the guard wasn't able to go. It's in God's hands, and it's his. We have been losing the electricity for many hours because of this situation. Please pray for stability in Gaza and in the region, that the leaders from both parties will have wisdom to take the right decision for the benefit of the people in Gaza. Please pray for people to stop killing each other. As I write to you, I still hear very heavy shooting and very loud gunshots close to our area. Please pray that God will protect his children and protect the different ministry buildings in Gaza. Please pray that God give me special word of encouragement and comfort to my people in the church and the community. Please pray that I will be the shepherd who will be blessing to his people. Grateful, gratefully, Hannah. Um, I thought you should know that. Uh, this is our prayer, and I hope this is your prayer the rest of the week uh, for Hannah there. Um, well, that was Steve's message. That was not part of my sermon. Don't count that time against me. Um, uh, uh, in my, me- my own message, I also believe we need to pray for our poor earth. It's also under devastating attack. Pastor Steve wrote to me this week, Hi, Glenn. Glad you will be bringing the word of the Lord to us May 20th. Joyce and I had dinner with my parents Sunday night, 
And my dad had seen an ad for your latest book, this uh, Sermon on the Mount book, Living the Sermon on the Mount, that um, that Jordan mentioned. And my dad purchased it and is reading it. And he says some other things. And about your book, I thought chapter 7 was especially good on creation. God cares for the sparrow and so forth and Faulkner's The Bear Story. Last year, we wrote out our vision for First Baptist Church. And our concluding value is stewardship is the care of God's creation and faithful use of all our God-given resources for God's glory. Faithfully manage God's creation and our resources. So Pastor Steve says, would you be willing to develop your sermon on the lines of this value? You could use the material in chapter 7. I'd love for you to do so if the Lord leads you, but feel free to go in another direction if you are so led. Well, I am following our pastor's um, advice, direction, um, uh, and uh, so blame on him anything that... Um, uh, um. First of all, God cares for the creation. God is green. We'll never get our relation to the environment and conservation right unless we correct our understanding of God and the creation and become really clearly aware that God is the creator and continuously creating the in, in the creation, caring for the creation. Uh, in our, our own culture and uh, for various reasons, I think, we have, many of us have sort of developed an unconscious understanding that, well, you know, I'm here and, and, uh, and the creation is out there somewhere, uh, nature is out there somewhere, uh, kind of separate. And, and so it's like, you know, here, here it's, it's me and God in church worshiping and me and God having this intimate relationship, uh, but somewhere, somewhere else is the creation. Um, that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying to us in this passage. Um, God is deeply involved in the creation every day, and so are we. What we eat, what we breathe, it comes from the creation. We are part of the creation. And when the creation gets polluted and gets poisoned, we are eating and breathing that, and we ourselves become polluted and poisoned. And Asthma increases and cancer increases. And my, Dot, my wife, is now um, uh, at the University of Virginia the first part of this week for a reunion in her school of nursing. It's striking how many of her class members have died of cancer, those who have worked in the same place. And you wonder what's happening there. I've had several different. Um, Hanford, Washington, uh, with nuclear uh, stuff going on, the thyroid uh, cancer problem there from the iodine, the radioactive iodine that's happening there and so forth. Uh, we are part of creation, and creation is part of us. In fact, we're the biggest part of creation now with our machines, the most destructive part, and we are destroying uh, the creation. Only when we see that God is deeply involved in caring for God's creation and deeply involved in caring for us, and we are part of that creation, and it is part of us, and we need to be part of what God is doing as continuous creator. Do we restore and heal our proper relationship uh, to the creation? So Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
God is presently feeding the birds. See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be given you as well. Some have read this passage as if it were about, well, God's doing everything, and so we should just be passive. But it's not about our passivity. It's about God's activity. God is deeply involved in the creation. That's what Jesus is saying. And if you don't get the message here, um, you can see that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. When he teaches us that we are to love our enemies... He says God gives his son to the, and gives his reign to the just and the unjust alike. This is something God is actively doing every day. Um, in the three teachings about almsgiving, praying, and fasting, each time Jesus emphasizes that God is present, seeing in secret, and knowing what we need even before we ask for it. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus indicates that God is actively present, giving us our daily needs, forgiving us, and delivering us from evil. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus teaches that God hears our prayers and will give good things to those who ask him. Let's recover our sense of God's living presence, uh, God's presence caring for the creation. The creation is not something out there. It's something that God is deeply involved in and and that we are part of. How do we recover that in our experience? Well, David and I have a friend who uh, goes to the ocean now and then, and um, and sees the the beauty of the infinite water, feels the rhythm of the water, the waves cleansing us, sees the sun in the blue sky or the moon at night, and has a deep experience of God's presence. My grandfather was a tomato farmer, and he had 20 acres of tomatoes. Um, and in Minnesota, where you got to worry, you got to get the tomatoes out early so you can beat the others, but if you get it too early, they get frozen in, in the next frost, and you got to time it just right. Um, and uh, my grandfather saw, you know, in the growing of the tomatoes, God's care, God's presence. He also said that the farm every spring produces new rocks. He always Each spring he takes all the rocks out, and new ones come. He says, my garden grows rocks. Is that a gift from God, too? Um, and my wife, Dot, is now in um, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia uh, visiting her brother, who has a farm up on the ridge. So he looks in one way, and he sees the Shenandoah Valley and the Blue Ridge Mountains. He looks the other way, and he sees the West Virginia uh, uh, Valley and the West Virginia Mountains. Sonny isn't making a lot of money on this farm, but I really think he has a sense of God's presence, even though Sonny's a Methodist. Um, yeah. How many of you can think of a time when you had a sense of, of God's presence uh, through the creation, nature? Can anybody raise their hand? Good. Good. There is a problem we have, though. That is that the examples I've given have mostly been sort of, sort of in farms and, 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 and at the beach. And we live in the city. And one of the problems that's happening to our culture is that we've gotten kind of severed from nature because of our urban existence. 
Now, those of us in Pasadena are fortunate because it's the city of roses, and that's phenomenal. Our neighbor, Nettie, just does wonderful care and skill in growing her roses and also orchids and, and so forth, and sometimes gives us one, as she did this week, a beautiful orchid. So we do have some of it in Pasadena. But I want to tell kind of an unusual story. I started out my career to be a nuclear physicist, and I had the opportunity to do research on the binding forces in different isotopes with the 2 million, Van de, uh, 2 million electron volt Van de Graaff accelerator, which the head of the project, Jim Butler, had arranged so that it could sit precisely on a precise energy level where there was a shoulder, not just the peak, but the shoulder of resonance as you would get to that energy level. And... Um, we each of us had to work alone for three for eight hours, three shifts a day. So I would be there alone, beaming this beam of precise energy onto a particular isotope, its nuclei. And because of Jim's ability with this Van de Graaff accelerator, no one ever, no matter how many eons you go back, had ever been able to ask this question. Uh, uh, you know, what is your binding force? What's happening as I, as, I, as I do this energy beam on you? Nobody had ever. It had never been asked. And I would get the results in the 20-channel analyzer and calculate the correction factors and so forth and graph it. And it came out in beautiful sine curves or in beautiful diagonals. The nucleus spoke my language. It, it was saying... I've been waiting eons for somebody to ask, and now I can speak your language. And for me, this was such a spiritual experience of the presence of God dynamically doing new things in that moment and answering me back. And when it was done, I can't sing, Joanna, but I can run. And I would just, I would just run, you know, just literally run uh, out from the Naval Research Lab um, for a long distance, exulting at the experience of God's presence. Um, and I imagine that Stuart Demkak, who plots the flight, the flight um, route for uh, U.S. Um, space travel, rocket kind of things, and they go off and they get there out to the planets and so forth, I could imagine that Stuart might have had a kind of analogous experience of, of the, the, the creation and, and God's, God's presence. And, and you know what? Um, uh, this may sound funny to you, but I have a sense of God's presence with the gold line. <laughs> now, that, that, I want you to get into this, uh, and so you think about this. I mean, like, um, tw- about 20 years ago, um, we had a law that said um, every year the automobile company total fleet needs to be one mile per gallon more efficient. And it, it went from 13 miles per gallon to 26 miles per gallon, the average. But at that time, we had an administration that believed you really shouldn't regulate business, and so it canceled that law. And so we've made no more progress since. In fact, we've gone downhill since. If that law had stayed in place for this 20 years, we would have saved the amount of oil that is in the whole north slope of Alaska two times over. And we would have saved a lot of global warming from burning that oil. 
What a tragedy that we haven't been continuing to make the progress. And a hundred years ago, General Motors and Goodyear bought Los Angeles' public transportation system so that we would have to switch to automobiles and the freeways proceed and the air pollution and so forth. They did that to a hundred cities in the United States to increase profits for automobile companies and oil companies and tire companies. And so here we are. It wasn't until Mayor Tom Bradley that Los Angeles started building back a public transportation system. And now we've got the gold line. The gold line runs on electricity. I mean, think of my nuclear stuff. That's those electrons continuously. It's electrons that are making it run. God is doing new things in the creation. You see, part of my sort of nuclear physics story is that the very building blocks of of our whole physical reality, the nuclei, every moment they're deciding, shall I stay as I am or shall I split? Um, Shall I do new things? God is active. I mean, the whole creation is alive. And those electrons are alive driving those those gold line trains. And uh, Dot will come home tonight and she will take the bus from, you know, the, the flyaway bus from the airport to the Union Station and get on the gold line and come on out to Allen and I will meet her there. And you can go right over here to the uh, Memorial Park Station, just two blocks down Holly Street, and take the goal. That's how David got here to church this morning. Right, half a block maybe. Um, The gold line is saving a lot of pollution, a lot of energy, taking a lot of people, and it's growing rapidly, and it's it's so convenient to us, and it takes us down into Los Angeles. And so I see people who have organized this in an engineering way and a political way, participating in God's caring for creation. So can you feel with me a little God's presence as you celebrate the gold line and all that it stands for here in the midst of our city? Um, second, Jesus says, um, I mean, Jesus is a realist. He says, you know, where your treasures are, that's where your heart's going to be. And, where, and then he starts talking about our seeing, you know, where our heart is, our loyalties, our seeing becomes healthy or, or, or unhealthy. It's where you invest your money. He doesn't say as an idealist would, oh, keep investing your money in things that will build your own prestige, but then but keep your heart pure. No, he says, you got to straighten out where you're investing your money because your heart follows your financial um, investments. Um, well, let me ask you a question. What does uh, rust? What does rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal? I can't hear. It. Oops, can't hear you. What? What is? Think about it. I mean, guess now. What is it that rust destroys and thieves break in and steal? Everybody talked at once. Did somebody say cars? The holy car. I think that's what I mean. Thieves steal cars, and and uh, and and the rust, you know, rust on cars. You see, Jesus knew that we would be building all these automobiles <laughs> and destroying the creation. Uh, we teach uh, we teach sound principles of biblical interpretation at Fuller. Um, now, uh, my good friend Janet Parker just won a major award for her sermon on the creation. She says that acknowledging the depth of the planetary crisis human beings have created and really paying attention to the drumbeat of news about ecological degradation and climate change not only evokes fear, 
but also a deep sadness. Because we sense on some level that the earth that we know and enjoy right now will not be the earth that our children and grandchildren inherit. The signs are everywhere, she says. Glaciers and ice sheets in the Arctic and Antarctic are melting much faster than we expected. The projection we, we saw had the mountains with uh, glaciers or, or, or at least snow and ice on top, and that's melting so rapidly. Um, warming temperatures are coming over the next century, and they could turn rich agricultural land into desert, dry out the rainforest, raise sea levels, extinguish countless species, and cause disastrous storms. Most scientists now say that climate change is not something facing us in the future. It's already here. The debate over whether global warming is happening is over. The only question is how bad will it get? Dr. Gustav Spaeth, Dean of the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale, was asked recently if environmental damage due to climate change could be prevented. No, he replied, it's too late. But we still may be able to prevent catastrophic damage. He concluded, this is our last chance to get it right. We have run out of time. Scientists and theologians are speaking a language now that sounds off-key to modern ears. It's a language that biblical prophets like Ezekiel and John of Patmos in the book of Revelation would recognize. It's the imagery of the end times, of apocalypse. Um, The environmental challenges that face us are beginning to look apocalyptic. The edge of an abyss that clear-eyed scientists peer over and tremble at and the threats we faced are not orchestrated by God, but they're self-inflicted. No other animal has attacked the earth as humans are now doing. No other humans in all of human history have destroyed earth as our energy-driven machines are now doing. Something entirely unprecedented is happening just in recent years, and we are letting it happen as if it were all out there, nature. But it's destroying all this natural. Human-made machines are now the biggest part of nature, and they are destroying it as surely as a rapidly growing cancer destroys a human body. I like to pay careful attention to data. In 1980, when I was teaching my course on world hunger and the energy crisis, I looked at the data on how the consumption of oil and gasoline was increasing and continues to increase exponentially each year. So it's not just a straight line. It's like cumulative interest. It goes up faster and faster. Um, And I I, I knew that the amount of oil that we have in the earth is a one-time gift of God from millions of years ago. It's 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 not growing back when we burn it up and use it. It's just gone. And if you have a limited supply and exponential growth, That's a recipe for disaster. And so I I, I calculated the numbers. And I said to my students in 1980 that about the year 2010 is when we will not be pumping up as much oil as the world demand. And the prices of oil will start going up rapidly. How do you think my calculations did? We're seeing it happen now, I think. We are, we are not only causing global warming, we are using up all the oil that God gave us as a one-time gift, surely intending that it would be shared across many generations, using it all up in about three generations. So future generations have almost none. Does that give some clue to Jesus' teaching on greed? How can we possibly justify that we just do that and don't care about others? 
But I all, and, I, and I said to my students, Jesus was right about greed. Um, here are the numbers. Here are the data. Scientists are saying things, something like this. But I don't expect the nation to repent. There isn't a good track record for people hearing from prophets and repenting. I expect we won't repent until the crisis is upon us, and by then it'll be too late. Uh, it'll be gone, and we'll still have these big gas-guzzling automobiles. We are the prodigal son. We have squandered the wealth we were given. It's gone. We've done this uh, in the far country. So what do we do? Well, for one thing, don't invest in automobile stock. Don't invest in building more roads. Invest in extending the gold line further out and the other public transportation system. Uh, start doing it now by yourselves, taking the gold line or other public transportation when you need to go to the airport. Um, uh, by the way, I mean, you know, to go to the airport on the gold line, it just costs four dollars and a quarter. Dollar and a quarter on the gold line, three dollars by bus. It's a lot better than super shuttle or parking your car down there or having somebody drive hours through the traffic uh, to get there. And you contribute to public transportation and to doing something about this. Um, it's hard to talk about the destruction that we're doing, the melting polar ice caps, using up all the oil, warming up the Gulf of Mexico so that the hurricanes are more powerful and the tornadoes are more destructive. Um, it's hard to think about what we've done, and now here come China and India uh, get building in our direction and what that's going to do to the world. It's hard to talk about all that um, without, without being sad um, and maybe a little alarmed. Um, but we have to break the silence, especially within churches, because here, above all else, we must speak the truth. If we can't speak the truth in churches and talk about God as the creator in churches, where can you? If we can't talk about our responsibility of stewardship rather than greed in the church, where can we talk about that? Um, that's why we have apocalyptic literature in the Bible, to warn us and to call us to repentance. But finally, Jesus is a realist. Um, he says people's hearts and their eyes follow where their money is. So you got to pay attention to where the money is invested. That's realistic. Um, don't we have to change the financial incentives um, so that the consequences of consuming large quantities of energy, you know, are paid for to some extent? Um, over the last 30 years, a lot of us Christians have been making changes in our daily living. We put in more insulation, change the thermostat settings, close the curtain when it gets hot or cold, uh, located our homes near our work or on a bus line or bicycled to work, uh, got solar panels, bought a GeoMetro or something that has a really good EPA rating for what car we're going to use. Uh, we've done things like that, doing Good for God's earth like this gives us significant more money to invest in God's kingdom and God's justice. Our family has cut our, our natural gas consumption, our electricity, and our gasoline in half. And that gives us more money to invest in helping pay for Baptist International Missions. We've got graduates of this church who are doing wonderful stuff. But the American Baptists don't have enough money, and they're calling back some of the missionaries. Um, Save the money, um, spend it on God's kingdom and God's justice as Jesus is teaching. 
But Matos, those are individual things we can do. But Matos financial incentives. Europe and Japan know about this problem, and so they tax gasoline more than we do. They realize that burning gasoline means you're causing a balance of payments problem for your country because you have to import the oil. It means you're destroying the forests and making the farms not work as well because of acid rain, and you're polluting, um, and um, you're using up the oil that's running out. There are lots of social costs, so we should tax it extra so people are more efficient. And the result is that Japanese and European cars are more energy efficient than U.S. cars, and the result is that General Motors and Ford and Chrysler, which lobbied the U.S. government not to have it do that, is now in serious trouble because they've got these gas guzzlers that fewer and fewer people want. So that financial, you change the financial incentives as the Japanese and Europeans do, and then people's hearts and their seeing starts to follow. In Los Angeles, it's working well to cap and trade the amount of pollution that factories can produce. It used to be a few years ago there were over a 100 warnings a year here about too much ozone and dangerous air and so forth. Now it's only one or two a year. We've really made some, some progress. You can do things. The Supreme Court has just ruled that the Federal Energy and Protection Agency should do its job. It should be helping us get more energy efficient, which the law requires, but the EPA has been told not to do it. And the EPA is blocking California and 10 other states from putting in better standards for the automobiles because the automobile companies don't want these states to do it. Um, they want to keep doing what they're doing. And so the present EPA is not doing what the law requires, and the Supreme Court says do it. Um, so Jesus is saying, realistically, you can't just rely on good-hearted people. You need to affect our pocketbooks. You need to give a financial incentive to conserve. Where people's financial incentives are, there will be their hearts. Jesus is a realist. Jesus is here giving us a call. God is deeply engaged in caring for the earth and so also for us. He's calling us to simplify our lives not to be investing our money in the service of the idolatry of mammon, but in his kingdom and his justice. Um, he's, he's calling us to a seriously thought through, seriously committed to God's compassion as revealed in Christ kind of life. It's a call that makes a serious impact on me and I think on you. So I advocate a mustard seed strategy. Take little steps in your own life that show you take God's will seriously. So I conclude with a short poem from Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows within me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. This is our Father's world. Amen.